This is Mouth Media Network, your inside voice. Hi, my name is Eric Huberman. I'm the founder and CEO of Hawk Media. And what I love about marketing is that it's it creates the ability to bring great products and services to people that may not know they exist. Only 6% of the grocery business is done online. The opportunity for growth is huge. But how do you get the attention of consumers and turn their heads to online solutions? Access to great marketing in a tough marketing and advertising landscape can be challenging, and doing it right can be tough to tackle without building up infrastructure or squandering capital while you figure out what works from new marketing platforms to content marketing. Coming up, you'll hear from a solution to this issue as hosts Rob Sanchez and Anne-Marie Stevens talk with a full-service marketing consultancy that acts as an outsourced CMO helping businesses of all sizes and industries grow. All this on location at Grocery Shop. You're listening to Grocery is Your Business, covering the intersection of innovation and business in the food and grocery industries. Recorded on location. Grocery is Your Business is a show about connecting the business and the technology side of the grocery industry and the rapid changes that are happening there. And so, Eric, I'm glad that we have you on and have a chance to talk with you a little bit about the marketing side of that. And I'd love to have you unpack a little bit about what you do. Sure. So I run a company called Hawk Media. Basically, we are an outsourced CMO and marketing team to companies. So we go into different brands, uh, do an audit, and identify where the holes are in their marketing strategy. And then we have about 175 different marketing experts full-time from things like Facebook advertising, uh, display ads, Google marketing, email marketing, influencer content, fractional CMO work. And so we'll go in and take over the aspects that the company's missing and uh, basically help people gain access to great marketing. And that's really where the company was founded on is finding ways that companies could actually get great marketing in a consistent way versus the volatility of the marketing talent landscape. And what has brought you to Grocery Shop and what are you seeing in this industry? Uh, So at Grocery Shop's sister event shop talk, I speak at every year and it's one of our better events. And uh, they asked me to speak twice here at Grocery Shop. Uh, Today was on uh, new marketing platforms and tomorrow is on content marketing. And so, I mean, this is our world. We work with a ton of CPG brands, some of the biggest, as well as a lot of up-and-comers. And so, you know, what's exciting about this industry is, I think it was the number is 94% of purchases are still done in-store in the grocery industry, which means 6%, has, only 6% penetration from online has happened so far, but it's also the most, the fastest growing. So really quickly, you're seeing companies like Amazon buy uh, Whole Foods and now offer free delivery, which is e-commerce in a sense. You're buying it online, it's showing up at your door. And so that innovation hasn't quite caught up yet. And so the transformation and the change that's happening there is honestly exciting. It's fun. It's, you know, listening. I was on stage with uh, Tyson Foods, Kroger, and Anheuser-Busch, all their heads of e-com. And the way they're looking at it is actually impressive. I thought they were going to be a little more behind, but they're really on top of it. I mean, Anheuser-Busch is an example talking about 
the the three tier rule in terms of like you have to alcohol has to go from the brand to a distributor to a retailer, and so that makes it really hard to go direct to consumer because it's literally illegal. Um, but there's now all these workarounds and ways to do it with partners that still service that rule, but allow you to go direct to consumer. And uh, beer, as an example, is uh, most commonly an impulse buy. We need beers for, to watch the game. We ran out of beer, that kind of thing. And so now finding ways to service that, again, it hasn't caught up yet, but watching the changes is fun. Um, I'd love to have you talk through what you're seeing from the marketing perspective. How is the conversation evolving yep. as stores tackle this side of the the change? Yeah, so similar to that conversation I had earlier, um, or another example from that, basically, you know, there was the past 10 years, there's been this huge trend of going direct to consumer and just being your own brand and launching companies that don't have any retailers and ignoring retail. And now, especially in the grocery and CPG space, we see that's 6% of the industry, like, oops, we cut off 94% of our potential revenue. So what you're also seeing is on e-com, 55% of e-commerce business in the United States is done on Amazon. So this concept of just going direct to consumer for revenue driver is, they're kind of backpedaling it a little bit and going, oh, this actually may not be the way to go. And it's going back to a retail and brand partnership where Tyson Foods does not go direct to consumer and distribute themselves. They use e-commerce, but they use it through Kroger, through all their other grocery partners because the logistics of it, the customer acquisition part of it, like it's all very expensive and it's better to partner up in that. And so in this space, from a marketing perspective, what we're seeing is our marketing efforts for brands are going to support their retailers and helping it facilitate that partnership versus trying to just get everyone own every customer, which that data is super important and there's ways to do data partnerships with those retailers so that you can actually optimize the way you're marketing better as a brand. But it's better to sell through with partners than it is to try to just do everything yourself. Are you seeing this as a modernization of the coupon circular and the sort of like shelf stalker in store and so on where the brands are almost paying for the placement in the stores or yeah. is it a different animal uh both so it's the the answer is it's there is a lot of monetization of that couponing where uh kroger was talking about on stage they have a whole media business now where they literally run media on their site for these brands and in that you're basically competing with their other brands and so it's kind of a funny like you know, ecosystem that they've built where people are trying, same thing as Amazon, where you're doing I was Amazonized. exactly going to say yeah. that. It's yeah. literally the same thing. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's exactly the same thing. And what's interesting, again, Walmart, so Amazon's 55%. The other thing yeah. I would add to that, though, too, that's not really, it's it's an evolution, right? It's right. not a lot, it's yeah. not really different because they have the in-store TVs, you know, uh, TV yeah. networks that advertise, you know. Oh, and even uh, displays. So like displays, displays that advertise. Yeah. So it's really not. No, it's different than couponing because it's not, discounting your brand in order yeah. to drive yeah. that, which I actually think can be detrimental yeah. in a lot of ways. Um, you're just devaluing your own brand. That's yeah. not couponing you got to be careful with. Um, but it's definitely an evolution of marketing. And then on, um, and then you're just seeing a complete change because a lot of the marketing now is owned by the brand as well, where like they can actually track and drive in. Like Kroger does a really good job of being transparent. This is again from this conversation today. They show where customers are coming from so it allows the advertisers to responsibly responsibly spend money on ads to drive in and support that versus you know traditionally i remember we, we ran a marketing campaign with a company six years ago to gnc.com to push their products through gnc 
and we had no idea if it was converting until the report at the end of the month. Like there was no right. autom- automation. You couldn't optimize. Or, yeah, no, I was just going to say, so are you seeing then more of a collaborative process on data sharing then? Because that's really a, it's, has always been a sticking point. And it's moving that way. The the good retailers are understanding they need to. Yeah. Obviously, Amazon's doing a great job of that. Yeah. It sounds like Kroger is. I haven't had experience there. Um, what I hear is Target and Walmart are looking at it. I don't think that they're completely opened it up yet. But you know, it's. I think you have to have some level of that. You know, my view of the world has always been. You know, a few years ago, I know I was out there saying things like, you know, re, you know, malls, retail, or malls are to retail, retail are to brands, or brands are to retail, or retailers to malls. You know, that kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. Is that, because they all don't want to share data, yep. right? Yes. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, it's a very competitive landscape. And the only way, uh, the most successful way they can can really win is by supporting each other's businesses and yeah. some data transparency. Maybe not all, but, but some that actually moves, moves them in the right direction. I think in the long run, you're going to have to. And I think the people that don't become more open and transparent, there's just it's it's a cultural thing now too. People expect yeah. it that the more you close, the more you're going to lose certain people here and there, and over time that's going to hurt. Yep. As you're going in and, and working with people as you optimize, how do you stay on that forefront of the conversations, and um, how much of your role is training people to shift their thinking, and how much is sort of um, responding to training, them? meaning training our customers? Yeah. Kind of yeah, there's a lot of that, honestly. There is, I mean, in the past year and a half, uh, Facebook advertising, Google advertising are both about two and a half X in cost. So just running ads to arbitrage and drive customer acquisition is really not a great way to go anymore. It still works for certain brands, but to expect that that's going to be the case is just ill-advised. But teaching people not to look at a weekly report on their Facebook advertising and how much money they made is it, it can fall off very quickly. And so finding other teaching them about the marketing mix and how to double down on things that can actually help drive those results in a better way, looking at it a more long-term approach, understanding company OKRs versus just being KPI driven, driven and looking at uh, the lifetime value of a customer over the course of a year as opposed to that first purchase, or again, a weak window of ROI, which is really short-sighted. So that's a lot of the teaching we have to do. Um, and that's right now. Before, we could just arbitrage Facebook and we were teaching people Honestly, even more basic stuff like how to place a pixel and the fact that we could track conversion. Because I remember three, four years ago even, I was still getting pushback that like, wait, you can actually track if you sell through a Facebook ad? It's like, yes, we promise that it's real. So, How do you work um, the multiple touch points and the different types of advertising? So one of the things I've seen is that once somebody knows that a Facebook ad converts at X percentage, they kind of forget that there were other touch points that yep. drove that. Um, how do you do the attribution tracking across the whole life, lifespan? Yeah, so we, it's funny. Another teaching moment for our clients a lot of times, they want to make you know percentage attribution or how do you attribute that sale? Is it 30% Facebook, 50% email because you sent them an email too? And the answer is it's 100% both. And so it's really, we do, we, you can track that even through Google Analytics in terms of multi-touch uh, attribution. But in terms of uh, subscribing a number to it and saying this is how much... That's, that was worth to Facebook versus email, I think is a mistake. I think it's more looking at your global marketing strategy and how that's converting. Because when you do it that way, you use the individual metrics like your Facebook ROI to optimize Facebook. Like this ad performs better than this ad. But when people come to me going, well, should we turn off Facebook and turn on this? Like generally that's where the mistakes start to happen versus like looking at how you optimize every channel. And allocation is more of a global strategy thing than like 
this is how much Facebook is performing versus search. You really just need to think through logically and look at a more global perspective usually versus getting too scientific about it. I guess that makes sense to think about um, each platform as a piece of a whole versus standalone. I mean, again, talking about the chain, if I put up a Facebook ad and that person clicks the ad, goes to my site, I collect their email address, I then send them an email and they come back to the site, they then type in, you know, let's say we're talking about um, Hawk Media. They then Google Eagle Media and then end up on Hawk Media because we're SEO ranked and we, they somehow find us again. And so they've come through all those channels and then they convert. Which deserves credit? The email, the Facebook, the search marketing, or my website? The answer is all of it. It's all one thing. And I spent money on all of it to get that customer. So it's 100% of all the spend across those channels that cost to get that customer. And so that's where you have to look at that full blend of like, was it worth it? So for a CPG, uh, CPG company that's inside of a physical retail space and also doing online spend, how, how do you think about cross-channel with the actual physical store versus the online and yeah. um, attribution that way? As well? So we've been having a lot of fun with that because it's still very underutilized because so many people are stuck in this direct attribution kind of window where you can most people aren't driving to in-store because you can't track it, which it's, it's painful, but sometimes you don't... Like, We went through, again, the past 10 years, we went to hyper-tracked, hyper-data-driven marketing. And before that, marketing was a little more impression-based, overall lift-based. And I think there's a happy medium where you still want to track and be data-driven, but overly data-driven, you end up cutting off your nose to spite your face and not doing things because you can't track is a mistake. So, and we've watched that. Like, we'll see a pixel break on Facebook for a company and they'll be like, we'll turn off all our ads. It's like, no, no, the ads are still working. We just can't optimize them as well right now. So like, keep the ads going. We'll fix the pixel. Like, that, you, you got to be careful uh, understanding that. And so with in-store, most people aren't utilizing it, which means people really, it really catches attention. If I know your target audience, I know where you're carried in-store, but say I put a two-mile radius around it, which you can mm-hmm. do, and now I can target on social media, like, you know, hey, go in and get your, you know, your sunglasses at this store because we know you'll love them and showing ads that impulse buy, people might, people do react to that in a very big way. We've had yeah. some incredible success with like Target and Walmart running launch campaigns into them with different project products through that kind of a strategy, along with leveraging influencers in the area. Mm-hmm. Interesting. How do you th- tie in the influencers? So one of the yeah. things I've been watching is that the marketplace of influencers is completely changing. Like it's, yeah. it's um, fundamentally different now than it was even a few months ago, it feels yep. like. Um, how are you thinking about that playing an overall strategy as well, especially on the yeah. food side? So I say there's two different aspects of influencer marketing uh, that are, one has been around forever, which is just endorsement deals, like replicating endorsement deals with the bigger influencers, as long as they're not, frankly, whoring themselves out too much, getting like a, a true influencer and a big one that's almost crossed into celebrity to endorse a product can have a lot of weight and just bring a lot of trust to that product. Um, and then the other side is really just an ad network. Like, because they have to disclose that it's ads now, you're basically getting the same impact that you would from a Facebook or Instagram ad, and it's harder to scale. So it's just, it's another way to hit people that can hit a different type of consumer than may respond to a Facebook ad, but it's pretty similar. And then the other piece of it is also, like, it's great content. A lot of these influencers are influencers because they create great content. So that kind of a partnership makes sense too, but um, those are the ways we're seeing it actually work right now. And are you finding that like a micro geo based um, 
type of influencer might play better or is it like somebody who's a global across the board? It depends on the strategy. So if you're trying to gain trust for a new product, global does more. If you're trying to drive people into a store, definitely micro-location-based. And that's probably the best use case for micro-location-based. Like when I see micro-influencers running like e-commerce promotions, I haven't seen massive lift from those kind of campaigns. That doesn't seem to be the right way to use them. But yeah, definitely trying to drive something local, grabbing those local influencers does a lot. And then overall in the grocery space, what um, what do you think is coming? That So we're at 6%. Yeah. Um, we're figuring out in-store and, and within the hour and, and so on. Um, we were just talking with Fabric about the robotic solutions that'll, that yeah. optimizes that side. What... Um, what are you kind of looking for to happen so that you can then respond on the marketing side? Yeah, I think there's a few things. But personalization is a massive change in the marketing side, um, especially as that grows. And, and again, when we're talking about e-commerce, we also mean same-day delivery. And now every Prime member within, I think it's two or three miles of Whole Foods, gets free delivery within two hours. Yeah. So the, like, why go into Whole Foods anymore if you're a Prime member for whatever it is now, 80, 90 bucks a year or something? Like, It's not... It's just so as you do that, then with personalization, we have Facebook and Google and all these sites have so much data, even Amazon, so much data on you that uh, it knows Google knows that I just went to Mexico and then went from Mexico to Vegas and then I'm going to New York and then Boston. Like, I've checked in on Facebook, like, I have my phone in my pocket, they're all tracking me. We know this, so it's not far before you know, I don't don't know the weather in New York, but just an example, but say it's going to rain on Friday. And it knows that I went from Mexico to Vegas in the dead of heat. It, hey, did you bring your raincoat? If not, we can have one delivered to your hotel on Friday. Just press this button. It'll be ready for you when you land. Like, yeah. that's that's coming very soon. We've seen startups in the travel space doing that right now. Yeah. Um, which and, is quite fascinating. And the problem with the startups doing it is they don't have access to the data that Google and Facebook do. So when yeah. they get into it, which that's a whole new found amount of money, those ads are going to be high converting because... I mean, again, it's predictable. It's also value-add. And value-add, right. right. There's, it's not a negative for anyone. Yeah. And what also becomes interesting there is then when all those things are taken care of, that like you're really getting presented products when you need them and only when you need them. Meeting the consumer at the time and place where they're at with the things they need. Exactly. But then marketing changes a lot because yeah. then yeah. why are you mar- why do you need to market toilet paper anymore when that's going to be the way well, to do see, it? Well, see, now, I'm, gonna, I would like to, I'm interested in that because... Yeah. How else am I going to learn? My concern around AI in general, I love AI. Yep. Obviously, it makes sense. It's, I'm not going to stop that you yeah. know, wave from happening. Uh, but even when we're fed, I mentioned this, I think, yesterday, you know, you know, news stories and things like that. It's come up in, in journalism as well as a concern around how do I get introduced to new items, right? Yep. It, it, if you're using my history, which is obviously an important indicator, if I ever want to really make a significant jump, and so the example I gave yesterday was, you know, I went to my doctor. He says I shouldn't eat sugar anymore. I have to have no sugar. So historically, I've bought no jelly beans, jelly beans yeah. and ice cream and whatever. So you can't have sugar anymore. You make a flip the switch, and now I'm going to be a vegan. Yeah. Right. So how? I think that's where marketing can play a significant part, but how do we make so, that leap? You, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah, and if there's two parts to that. One, on those kind of situations, I think we're going to, when this starts to be proliferated, they're going to see that problem pretty quickly, and they're going to go, okay, we need to let people update their own persona or may, literally tell us when there's life changes. Like, yep. And again, voice is also a massively growing market, so if you could just go, Alexa, I'm a vegan now, 
It's good to know. Yeah. yeah. You're done. Like that. That's so yeah. that part. But on the and average, they can start feeding you data or right. feeding you products based on that. Right. And but on the new introduction to products, yeah. that's where it gets exciting for a marketer because this is where it's going to be a lot harder to enter the space. The barrier to entry is going to be higher. And so you've got to be really good at that point, assuming that's where we go to say, like, you know, we know you always buy Downy, but we promise that our toilet paper is better. Getting that in front of people when they're used to buying those things based on just like, hey, triggered, go. That's going to be a fun place to play because you're not going to be able to just do the straightforward thing anymore. You're going to have to find creative ways to get attention. Do you think more impacting commodity products versus something else? Or? Oh yeah, this. I mean, this. That's what I'm. Yeah, this will be very difficult in commodity. In lifestyle, it doesn't really apply because it's not so. Yeah, we're getting used to micro brands anyway. Yeah, exactly. And I, I do believe that the rise of micro brands is fun. I mean, I think that a middle class of brand owners is actually a really cool thing. Um, Shopify is obviously crushing it for that world. And I think that that will continue to happen. But I also, in the same time, it's getting harder and harder to get to a sustainable level of revenue. Because if you watch a micro brand get it to, let's say, $5 million in revenue, just as an example, to retain that $5 million in revenue is also very difficult because that next micro brand is coming right behind you. So yeah. holding on to that is, this is a whole other marketing conversation, but we're seeing owned media and owned content and keeping your customer becoming more and more dire part of the marketing mix. I mean, it is fun to see that, like, the barrier to launch a company has been, while you're thinking about it, the barrier to launch a company has never been lower. Like you Boy, can get no it out kidding. There. I went yeah. to an event not too long ago where uh, it was in New York and it was an e-commerce thing. I didn't know. I went because I wanted to explore what it, I just wanted to know what it was. I didn't know any of the brands that yeah. were there, like none. Yeah. And so it was very evident that, you know, you know, the Warby Parkers, the Caspers, yeah. Purple, whatever, you name it. Those kinds of things now we're accustomed to. But there are so many well, micro brands. I had no idea who these folks were. Well, I don't know if these deserve to be called micro brands. I won't say the names, but we have clients that like one's doing 45 million in revenue their second year. Another one's doing 130 million revenue wow. their fourth year. Yeah. Another one's doing 300 million in their fifth year. And it's like they've come out of nowhere. Yeah. yeah. And these are real brands. Like 300 million is 50% bigger than Dollar Shave Club in the same amount of time, just to, for highlight, with wow. way less money raised. And wow. like, yeah. they're, it's it's incredible how quick you can go. Yeah. But and what are the channels they use? And I don't want you to disclose anything no, no, proprietary, no. Yeah. but is it like a YouTube? It's pretty, no, it's, I it's, mean, how do you get that kind of explosive growth? It's really straightforward. It's, it's finding ways to convert uh, customers really well to start. So that's owned content is massive. I really do see that. On everyone I just named, massive owned content strategy. Um, or not named, but alluded to. Uh, really good email strategy so they can convert as well. Really good website. Really good product. So that's all. People forget about all of that. Like Everyone goes to Facebook ads first. This is all like the conversion side. Once you hone that in, you can spend money on Facebook and you can arbitrage it. You can spend $5 and make 50 and like do these crazy things. And so when you can do that, then it's just a function of how fast, how long your purchase cycle is so that you get that payback and then you just reinvest it. And when you're mm -hmm. reinvesting it like that, even if your payback period is, let's say, a month and a half, but you can double every month and a half, that accelerates incredibly fast. And so that's what we see is like these people. And then, and then uh, influencer marketing has also driven all the companies I was alluding to there too. So like, because that created a lot of trust in it. And really how we look at it, marketing in general is just these three pillars. How do you create awareness? How do you nurture that awareness to a sale and how do you create trust, which a lot of people call brand because 75% of people won't buy a product from a company they don't inherently trust. This study Edelman did. So if three quarters of people won't buy from you unless they like really trust you, 
you'll still get the early adopters that'll jump in, but to really get into that market, you need to build trust, you need to build awareness, and then you have to nurture that because there's also the number one thing I see companies miss uh, when it comes to direct on to consumer online is the idea of a purchase cycle. They don't understand that there is a time period between the time you introduce them to your brand and the time they buy. Just I, I get it. If I say it, they understand it. But it's like when they're looking at their marketing, they're like, well, we spent $10,000 today. How much money did we make today? It's like that marketing today has nothing to do with your customers converting today. And so what we've yeah. seen from a statistical standpoint is for a $50 average order, it takes three weeks on average for someone to buy. For $100, it's five weeks. For $200, it's six weeks. And then it tapers off to between two and three months for any kind of impulse buy there. But like, even at 50 bucks, it takes three weeks. So you got to wait some time before you're making that money back. And that's really important to yeah. watch. That's interesting. So luxury cars, for me, are the best yeah. example to get somebody to understand. You sell a Ferrari when a kid is eight. Yeah. You don't sell it when he's 35. Exactly. And um, if you wait that long, if you're trying to target somebody to, to get them to convert, they're not going to be a fan. Yep. And that's a fan buy. Yep. Um, the, the question I want to go back to a little bit, I plays directly into this though, which is the data side. Yeah. So um, two kind of things have come up for me in the conversation. One is looking at um, what's Whole Foods bought uh, to gain the data on the customers and their lifestyle habits. Um, that was somebody had mentioned that yeah. thought or that idea earlier, and, and it was interesting. And then the second one is um, looking at the brands, the micro brands. Uh, there's a company I know that is churning product after product that are hitting those 10, 20, $50 million marks. Um, every product is an isolated standalone thing because they're so good at scraping the data for this cheese dish will play really well right now. Yeah. And this, you know, like mixer is going yeah. like this cocktail shaker is in the zeitgeist right now. Yeah. And it's that speed of manufacturing that they're using on top of the, the content yeah. strategy. So those are two aspects of data, but I'd love to dive into that a little bit with you. Yeah, so on the, the Whole Foods side, I, I think sh I'm sure data played a part in it because in-store data is really helpful. But one thing I've learned is like, no one's that smart. I think we can all probably uh, assume why Whole Foods bought unless there's something we don't know. But I, I think the main reason is the number I gave earlier, which is 94% of CPG still bought in store. Amazon's looking at that going, okay, so they own 55% of the online market here. So they own, you know, 3%, 4% of purchases in CPG. Like, yeah, it's a massive yeah, opportunity. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And distribution opportunity, and you know, and last mile opportunity, and, and, and. There's a lot. It was yeah. a brilliant buy, I think. Um, on the, and also they were very well aligned, right? right. The prime customer is the yeah. Whole Foods customer. Yep. Yeah. So. yeah, no, I mean, I, it, it couldn't make more sense, and which is great. And then, and they've leveraged it well. I think the, the the speed to execute on some of the integration was pretty impressive. Where like immediately they're doing prime delivery, and a, like it was like a week later they already had like products rolling out. I think it was they four x rotisserie chicken uh, sales because they saw that was driving people in. Like there was all these things that Amazon's a way better data platform than Whole Foods is. Not that yeah. Whole Foods was bad, but like they brought that data chops to it and immediately grew the business so that was really interesting to see also too, too I, I have to say even when I go there because I'll go to like have a lunch or that kind of thing you know yeah. and because um, I'm I live close to the the busiest Whole Foods the, I live actually close to the number one Whole Foods and the number one Trader Joe's so yeah um, where's so, that I'm curious around Columbus Circle oh right? yeah you know yeah. so um, the ease at which you can use your app to get your prime discount was stunning 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, honestly, stunning. Yeah. Yeah. No, they did it a great job. It was like no effort on my part. You yeah, know, as it's a consumer. It's great. None. Yep. 100%. Pull out my phone. Yeah. Pull up the barcode or yeah. the yeah. QR code. But I mean, like that's it. Yep. No, it's super easy. And then on the iterative side. I always worry people get like, there's a lot of Amazon sellers and stuff that are always trying to find the next product that people are going to buy um, that are super determined to get into, you know, whatever the next hype thing is. I think chasing hype and chasing that one piece of product is just not a scalable model. And so, sure, if you want to build a cash flow business and be on a hamster wheel all the time, you can go into that business. But maybe with 3D printing, it'll be different if that can become cost effective. But trying to build molds and launch the new hot product of the day over and over and over again. There's just nothing repeatable and scalable about that that sustains. I was just going to say, is this where I don't ask the question about Beyond Meat? Just kidding. <laughs> Plant-based burgers. <laughs> yeah. That's another <laughs> can of worms, but yeah. it's a very interesting one. Yeah. I've heard a lot of mixed stuff about that recently. Yeah. I'm no expert, but yeah. it sounds like it's not as healthy as we hoped it was Yes, as well. exactly. So, exactly. Then so. what's yeah. the point? I mean, uh, sorry, sustainable environment. Sustainable point, environment which, is fantastic. Yeah. But yeah. then if you're not getting the health and wellness benefits, then it's, yeah. you know, I don't know. So. Yeah. Yeah, they're here though, somewhere. I they are. They are here, and, the, and I will say, yeah. I've had, I've had, oh, yeah. and they're delicious. I so. agree. Yeah. Um, we're hitting the end of the, the time we have, so sure. I'd love to see if you have any final thoughts you'd like to share. Uh, final thoughts? Yeah, really, I would just say, like, as much as as someone coming from e-commerce and digital, I've sold to e-commerce companies. Like, e-com is really interesting, but I think people force themselves into one distribution model, whether we're going to be retail or we're going to be e-com without leveraging e-com as a way to build customer loyalty build, and use it as a marketing and branding tool, which is what Tyson Foods even said they did. Um, I think that when you're thinking about how to get into digital and e-com as a CPG, it's really important to use, just think of it as one more channel and one more aspect, not like, how is this working in this vacuum compared to this? It's complementary yeah. to everything else. And even, this is one last question. I asked Kroger, uh, how do they feel when their brands go direct to consumer and like, you know, technically circumvent them and sell direct? They're like, we don't mind. Like our customers are going to come to Kroger. We're not worried about, they're not going to poach our customers. And like that builds the brand overall. And that is how the bigger guys are looking at it. So you're not uh, cannibalizing anything. You're not doing anything wrong, but also don't expect it to be the big breadwinner. I think that's an important way to look at it. Thank you so much. It's been a real interesting interview. Awesome. Thank you. Um, so for Rob Sanchez, good night, y'all. For Emory, we're uh, out of here. This has been Grocery is Your Business, produced by Mouth Media Network. Copyright 2019. Thank you for listening. This is Mouth Media Network, your inside voice.